Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. The book of Amos. The book of Amos, chapter 6. We'll begin our reading in verse 1. Amos chapter 6, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Let me say a couple of things before we even read the text. There were 12 tribes of Israel. I know we've said it many times before, but let's repeat it. There were 12 tribes of Israel. The kingdom was united at the beginning, and then it was divided. It was divided at the end of Saul's reign. But then it was later reunited under the reign of King David. It would stay that way through his reign and through his son Solomon's reign. And then the kingdom would be divided again and it would never be reunited. Amos, and you always need to ask this when you're studying a prophet. Who is he writing to? To whom does he address his prophecy? Well, Amos is writing to the tribes in the north. We usually call that kingdom Israel, and we will call the southern kingdom most of the time, it is referred to in Scripture as Judah. But they were all part of God's overall people. They even got to the point that not only were they divided, but along about the time Amos is writing, there had been a civil war that broke out between the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. So they had been sorely divided and there was a lot that went on. But I can tell you the kingdom in the north has a bigger issue right now than worrying about the kingdom in the south. Shalamansar V is coming. He is a warlord of the Assyrians. It'll take him three years, but he'll bring this city to ruins. And he's coming. And about 30 years before he shows up, a little fig-picking farmer from a town down south of Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. It's like he came from South Carolina to North Carolina to preach. And that is not the only way in which I can relate to Amos. He stayed in trouble most of the time. But I can tell you, he came from below Jerusalem, came to the northern kingdom, And he began to preach there. In about 30 years, it would be the end of the northern kingdom. He tries to tell them that. No one repents. No one gets right with God. You would think these words fell on deaf ears, but that's not so. Because God has preserved them for us. He has a word for us. As a matter of fact, I will even say this. The title of this message today is Why We So Desperately Need a Savior. Why We So Desperately Need a Savior. You could subtitle every minor prophet and every major prophet. You could say Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. Why We So Desperately Need a Savior. Because every one of these prophets is going to talk about how Israel failed to keep their end of the covenant. They could not do it. 
They failed every time. If you look at Jonah, he was a minor prophet, but he wrote not to the southern or the northern kingdom, but he visited Nineveh and he prophesied to them. And that story ends so beautifully. Uh, Jonah's not real happy, but uh, boy, the Ninevites repented and got right with God. But then later the book of Nahum is written and it's like uh, Nineveh chapter 2. And that's when Nineveh had turned against God. So even though they were Gentiles and not part of God's people, God reached out to them, but neither could they keep the covenants either. They couldn't walk with God. They turned back to their evil ways like everyone else had. Now, let me just say this quickly. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, we have minor prophets and major prophets. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Old Testament, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 17 and 17. Just pretend there are fingers over here doing this, okay? There are 17 and 17. And then there are five books in the middle of the two 17s. If you can imagine, I'm trying to draw a graph here. And those are the prophetic, or, or not prophetic books, but poetic books, uh, the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the Psalms, Proverbs, books like that. So you have 17, 17, and 5, and that makes 39. Over here with this 17, they're historical writings. Five of them is the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then there are 12 books that are books of history. Uh, you have Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First uh, and Second Chronicles, and then later on you will have some history from after the exile from Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, and Esther. Now over here on this seventeen, they're also broke up in five and twelve. You have five major prophets. You have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Lamentations, and which one am I missing? Uh, Isaiah, that's what I said. Isaiah. So you have five major prophets. Then you have 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then, just like we had three after the exile over here, books of history over here, we got three uh, preachers that come along after the exile and that would be Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, not in that order. But that's all of them. And if you divide the books up like that, and you don't have to remember all those details, but just know we're dealing with a minor prophet. What's the difference in minor prophet and major prophets? Nothing except the length of their writing. The books are not as long. The, they didn't write as much. But there's not, it's not like they're less important. So let's go back. To the book of Amos, about 750 to 60 years before the coming of Christ, and 722 years before Christ, as we count down, uh, they will go into captivity. So about 30 years or so before they go into captivity, this little fellow comes up from the south, and he begins to preach. We want to look at chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion after saying all of that. 
The first words out of his mouth in chapter 6 is to Jerusalem. But it's the only shot he gives them. It's like me in North Carolina giving one shot back towards South Carolina. Woe to those that are at ease in star. Now I'm going to finish the whole rest of this chapter is going to be about North Carolina. The whole rest of this chapter he's going to preach to the tribes in the north. But he does give one little shout out to the crowd down in Jerusalem. Zion's another name for the city of Jerusalem. But then he turns his attention toward those in the north. He says, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom. They have a city there. Omri uh, bought it for 50 pounds of silver back in 1 Kings uh, chapter 16. You can read about that. He built a great city there. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calne and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? All these kingdoms have already fallen. You don't think it's going to happen to you, but they, they've already fallen. Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? We'll talk about what that means. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. He's not talking about the person Joseph, but two of the tribes in the north were one named after Ephraim and the other Manasseh, and these were the two tribes that were not named after Jacob's sons, but Jacob's grandsons. And they both were sons of Joseph. So sometimes the prophets would say, hey, woe unto you, O Joseph. He's talking to the northern kingdom. He says they've not grieved over the ruin of the northern kingdom, the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles. You want to be first in everything, you'll be first in that. And the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains, and it will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then he does a little hypothetical here. Then one's uncle or Perhaps his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house, and he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. And then he will answer, Keep quiet. For the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. We're scared to even call on his name now. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces, and the small house into fragments. Do horses run on rocks? He says, or does one plow those rocks with oxen? 
you're trying to do things in Samaria that do not make any sense. Could you imagine being a part of a nation that was doing things that didn't make sense? He says, do horses run on rocks? They don't do that. These rocky cliffs is what the word would mean. Or does one plow solid rock? Does he plow granite? No. Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitter wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim? For ourselves. For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arba. This is just one chapter. But this little preacher from a town called Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem by about 10 miles, he starts this whole chapter with a word that he's used before we translate it woe hoy is how we would say it in the actual hebrew but it is a word that means hang on a second bad news is coming alarm everybody stay put it's hard to translate it but it is like there's something about to be said, you need to hear it, but you don't want to hear it. And you're not going to like it when you do hear it. Woe unto you who are at ease. He levels them with his words. It is incredible that here is an ignorant farmer that can preach like Amos is preaching. There is no doubt about it that, that God has spoken to his heart. I'll just give you a few other places before we expound chapter 6. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. In other words, you bunch of big fat heifers in Bashan, who boss your husbands around, woe unto you. See, he's been watching the view. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, You have, in your midst, you have fathers and sons having sexual relationships with the same woman. They're meeting with the same woman, fornicating together, and so they ruin my holy name. He finishes the verse like that. No, it's not innocent. No, it's not just their business. No, it's not none of anybody else's business. They're living in fornication and yet they're coming and acting like nothing's wrong. And, and, and they're living these lifestyles out there and, and, and you don't really get points for pointing it out. In Amos's day and I'll have to say even in our world today, people will uh, uh, they will criticize you for even noticing such or preaching against it. Our churches are full of people that live together all week and worship God on Sunday. Sad. In chapter 4, verse 12, a shorter verse, he says, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Well, (laughs) why such a rebuke? Why such a rebuke? And, And nobody is going to listen. And I've already said this 
but let's repeat it. It is so that you and I, and I really believe that this is the place for the, the minor and major prophets, but especially the minor prophets in our day. It helps us to see, lest we might have some vain imagination that had we been those people, we would have kept the covenant. We'd have done better than they did. We wouldn't have done the things that they did. We wouldn't have been as foolish as they were. I think that the prophets help us to understand, no, we would have been just exactly like them. And that is why we so desperately need Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have never done it on our own, and we're never going to do it on our own. And the prophets keep repeating that over and over and over. And nobody does a better job of it than Amos. When I look at our world today, and I, this is not a message to the United States. We've got plenty to preach about here, but this is a message to God's people. He is not preaching to the Gergashites or Hivites. He's preaching to the Israelites. So before we bash uh, Washington, and no one can do it better than, than I, but before we get off on that, uh, let's just don't today, and let's let the message be directed at the so-called people of God. Let's take a look at what God has to say to us. Brother George mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention. I've been a Southern Baptist all of my life, and uh, God's done some tremendous things through out the, the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I thank God for all of the wonderful things that He has done. But Man alive, we are under attack big time. And a lot of it is our own fault. As a matter of fact, in 2020, and yep, we were fighting the COVID pandemic, but baptisms are down just about half. We lost 50% of our baptisms. We baptized about 123,100 and 60, that is the lowest number since the Spanish flu in 1919. And I, I, I will tell you this. Don't hear me say I'm taking the COVID pandemic lightly, but I can tell you right now that not only has been a political football for politicians, but for a whole lot of other people, it's just given them an excuse to do what they've been wanting to do for years, and that is stay home, go on with their life, Stay out of crowds unless, well, maybe it's Walmart or whatever. But stay away and, and, and it kind of wrecked their schedule a little bit. And that's about all you have to do to us. Unless you are committed to Christ, not to a church, not to a habit, uh, not to something you do just because you've always done it. Unless you really have a commitment to Christ, I can tell you, something like COVID can take you completely out of the saddle and there are folks who have left here. There are folks who've left tons of other churches that are never going to come back. Look on Facebook. They're getting on with their lives. New people, new friends, new things. Finally, I'm happy. Wow. It's sad. Um, we did spend, and I know this sounds like a lot, even with mission money down, we spent over a billion, a billion six hundred and fifty-five million dollars on missions. But we have spent so much more than that in the past. I, I mean, it's been incredible the falling of way, uh, way that we have had. And if you look at churches across the board, 
man, God's, God's people are just, they're just not into it anymore. It, and I, I, I say God's people rather loosely. I, I just, I, I think a lot of these people never knew God as their Savior. They, they had something they did, they enjoyed on Sundays, now they have something they do, and they enjoy more. I, I understand how that can happen, especially if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, when I looked at these stats, and I did a bunch of research on it this week, I won't share it all with you, but when I looked at them, I was amazed at something. You would think, and a lot of the so-called experts say that people have grown up. They no longer believe in fairy tales anymore. They no longer buy into all of these crazy stories that come from Scripture and and all of that. As a matter of fact, right now, and it's been this way, I was amazed for about 40 years, but somewhere between, and it oscillates back and forth, between 1% and 2% of the people in the United States, only 1% to 2% believe they will experience hell when they die. Now you might say, well, Mike, it's, it's the age of science. Okay, wake up. Those are all old fables. They're all part of religion, and people are too smart to believe that. Not so sure. 39% of Americans believe that there's a good possibility that they will be reincarnated. I think we graduated them too early, don't you? As a matter of fact, of 24% of that 39% are born-again Christians who claim that. And when you just count millennials, the ones that are really brilliant, 51% of them believe there's a good possibility that I will be reincarnated. I don't think we have become too scientific for God. We just like believing what we want to believe. Again, we desperately need a Savior. He lists some things. Let's look at them beginning in verse 1. We could have had a, a hundred of these, but we don't, so don't worry. But number one, he mentions in verse 1, is complacency. He said that's one of the reasons that we so desperately need a Savior. It's one of the things that happened to the kingdom in the north and he says, oh, by the way, and down in the south, woe unto you who are at ease in Zion. He didn't say woe unto you that are committing adultery and getting drunk and robbing banks and all of that. No, he says, you just don't care. You just are indifferent. Just nothing really matters to you anymore. You're falling apart too. As a matter of fact, in 136 years, Nebuchadnezzar is coming to your town. And he's going to do the same thing there that Shalamansar is going to do here. And you will go into captivity as well. There's an old black sermon I heard one time. I've heard this saying several times, but it came from an old black sermon at least once for me. It said, the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I think we need to afflict the comfortable. It might be time for a good stout gouge in the ribs, you reckon? Because I think sometimes that we just don't care. It, it, it is like uh, Laodicea uh, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. They said, we're rich and we have need of nothing. 
But God said to them, Jesus said to them, he says, when in reality, spiritually speaking, you are poor and you are wretched and you are naked and you don't know it because you're blind. But you think you're all right. You think things are fine. You just are so indifferent. It's just all right. You can't even understand why is it that Pastor Mike and other preachers are just so wound up about all of this. I mean, things seem to be you know, going fairly well. Our hearts are not broken. We, we're, we just don't have that conviction that, that we need to have over what we see going on. As a matter of fact, let me give you one more verse he gives us in another chapter. In chapter 5, verse 18, this is one of the most terrifying words that he says in the whole book. He says, alas, chapter 5, 18, alas, you are longing for the day of the Lord. You're using that like one day God's coming back and one day God's going to straighten out all this old world. We hear it all the time. We talk about at funerals. Well, he's not in pain now. He might be. Because Amos says, alas, you're longing for the day of the Lord. He said, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? He said, it will be darkness and not light. He says, you're thinking, oh, when God comes back, he's going to straighten out this mess. When God comes back, this and that's going to happen. Oh, when somebody died that never even knew the Lord, we'll talk about, well, they're okay now. And they're happy now. And, oh, Lord, he's up there fixing lawnmowers in the sky or whatever it was he did down here. And he's up there plowing those fields for the Lord now and all of that. that we are mistaken, Amos says. He says, sometimes the day of the Lord is not pleasant at all. Somebody who is in dire pain here may be in pain in hell right now, worse than they've ever imagined because they died lost without Jesus Christ. Quit putting your trust and faith and hope in the day of the Lord unless you have put your faith and hope and trust in the Lord. Terrifying word. Well, complacency. Secondly, pride. In verse 1 again, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Boy, it was located in a particular place on a hill. It was a long winding road that went to that city. Uh, they, were, they had citadels. They had uh, acropoli, I guess you would call them, acropolises. But they had these places where they had warriors uh, set out uh, it was well fortified. You had to fight through all of them before you could even get to the city. They felt that they were impenetrable. They felt like there is no way in the world that anybody can take us down. They had confidence that they controlled their own destiny. You know, I'm going to guess about every one of you that was alive and of any age of significance whatsoever you remember where you were on 9-11 you know one of the things about 9-11 and I know we've built the tower back and there's a lot of things that we've cleaned up about all of that we went and got our pound of flesh we did a lot of things but you know one thing I still don't think we've gotten over how could that happen here? The only thing that was even close to it was Pearl Harbor. How in the world could something like that happen here? We just can't wrap 
our mind around it. And I, I think a lot of our churches, again, it's not a message to America, but I think a lot of our churches think we're just going to go on and, yeah, we're, we don't really believe the Bible anymore and we preach a bunch of hogwash. I've told you before, we got churches now in the Southern Baptist Convention who are part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and, Lord, they preach all kinds of stuff. Some of them are wanting to ordain uh, homosexual pastors and things like that. And they probably would have pulled out of the Southern Baptist Convention altogether except for one thing, and that's we have an annuity board where all the pastors have their retirement stored away, and they couldn't figure out what to do with that. And so when they found out they couldn't leave and take any of that, with them, they decided to stay a part of Southern Baptist. They call it duly affiliated because we don't stand for a lot of the things for which they stand. You say, where are these churches? California? No. Rutherford County. We got them right here. Well, complacency, pride, a lot of those churches that think they're so cutting edge, they're doomed. They're forsaken the Word of God. Three, number three, egotism. The distinguished men, he said in verse one, of the foremost of nations, oh, you the biggest, baddest nation in all the world, remember that, to whom the house of Israel comes. These are the experts. You know what's going on. You, you got it all together. Matter of fact, I, I'm amazed nowadays when I look in the back of some of the Baptist publications and I read these churches that are looking for pastors and they give qualifications for the pastor. And, and I'm not saying that they won't ask more questions later. I, I, I got that. I understand that. I'm, I'm not trying to make a point where there's not one. But one of the things that they require a lot of times, seminary degrees, this much education, on and on, and that's a big deal. So much experience. It's almost funny sometimes. They want a guy that's young but has got 60 years experience. And uh, they want a guy that can speak on everyone's level but has got four doctorate degrees and all of that. It's really almost crazy what they put in there. Let me tell you something. They had the experts already running Samaria. And then this little preacher shows up named Amos. Now, when I was in seminary, when I went to school, I have to tell you this, and it is not an, by accident, and it was pretty well clear across the board. It was always consistent. If I had a teacher that was or had been a pastor or a missionary, they would be the best teacher that I would have. They could teach me more than anybody else in that school. It would be like instead of going to Tiger Woods to learn to play golf, I'm going to give him a rest one of these days. Boy's not doing well, I know. But it'd be like instead of going to him, you went to an engineer who understood physics and trajectory and impact and, and, and all of that. It'd be like you going to him and letting him teach you to play golf. No, you need somebody that's actually been out there and hit a ball. He might not can give you all the scientific whiz-bang about it, but he knows how to do it. And a lot of times we got these professionals in our seminaries that are teaching pastors how to go out and pastor churches, and the one doing the teachings never pastored a day in his life. 
Never a day in his life. Man, being a pastor is about more than just knowing things. You've got to have a calling in your life from God. And if you've got a calling in your life from God, I'm telling you something, friend, and that conviction that is burning in your soul like a furnace, I don't care if you can't spell. I don't care if you can't even read or write. I am telling you, God can use you in a mighty way. But you can have 10 PhDs. And no fire in your soul, and you're not worth walking across the street to listen to. Amos was no expert. I'm going to give you another passage. You can just read it on the screen with me. Amos in chapter 7, verse 10. Follow along. Then Amaziah, the priest, Went to one of Amos' meetings and said, Hey, man, brother, preach it. Now. Now, this is the priest. And Amos has given him a word from God so the priest should be happy, right? Well, he's not. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Amos conspired against you? These are not Amos' words. These are words from God. Don't blame it on the messenger. Don't, don't, don't make a deal out of that. He, he's, he didn't write the words. He, he's speaking the words from God. He says, the land, notice Amaziah tells Jeroboam, the land is unable to endure all his words. They just can't stand that. They just can't handle that. He's a bit too coarse, man. He is like leveling everything and talking about you're going to go into captivity and you're going to die and all of that. And the land cannot handle his words. He's causing a lot of problems. Verse 11, for thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah went and visited Amos. Oh, this is going to be good. Go, you seer. A seer, one that was seeing things, was a prophet. That's a word for him. Go, you seer. Flee away to the land of Judah. That's where you're from. Go back to Judah and there eat bread. That just means live your life. And there do your prophesying. We don't mind you preaching. Just preach somewhere else. But no longer prophesy at Bethel. Why? For it is the sanctuary of the king, and it's a royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me. He took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now I want you to notice what his message is now. Now that he's been warned, he says, Now hear the word of the Lord. You were saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. He says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. 
and your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself, Mr. Expert, you will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. That's the kind of preachers we need today. Complacency, pride, egotism, blindness. He says, go over to Calnea and look in verse 2 and go from there to Hamoth the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. All of these were great fortified cities and they failed. They were destroyed and you're not any better than they, are you? You're, you're not greater than they are and they all fail. Why don't you go back and learn something from history? When I look at our country and when I look at the church within our country, I, I, I think about... Uh, Rome, it lasted for nearly 500 years. It was dominant in the world, and there was nobody that had an army that could compete with Rome, but Rome failed. It crumbled because of disastrous decisions that were being made from within and immorality. And, and, and if you ever read a book on the fall of Rome, you read about their lust for sporting events and and the divorce rate went out of sight. That was something among the Romans that was unheard of for a long time. But marriages began to fall apart. Families began to fragment. And that moved right on into the rest of the Roman Empire. And they fell. I think of another one. We always hear about the Third Reich. Which was Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945. Well, what about the second right and the first one? If there's a third, surely there's a one and a two. Well, the first one was the Holy Roman Empire. It lasted from about 800 to the 1800s. Okay, so you got a thousand years. The Holy Roman Empire lasted. The Germans felt like, out of arrogance, that they were descendants of the Holy Roman Empire. They were the ones that ought to be ruling the world. So under Otto Bismarck, can't beat that name, Otto von Bismarck, actually. He unified Germany. He pulled it together in 1871, and it stayed together until 1918. At the end of World War I, it collapsed. That was the Second Reich, our empire, our, 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 our ruling empire. So the third one was Adolf Hitler's. He said, this is the third great Reich. This is the third impenetrable force. This is the third and final ruler of the world. It didn't last near as long as the first two. And it collapsed. Amos would tell us, go look at them. You think you can't fail America? The church in America, you think we're going to be here forever? You think we can just keep treating church like it's something to do when you have time? You think you can keep trying to live with one foot in the world and live and serve God at the same time? You think you can live in fornication and adultery and drunkenness and all of that and then come to church on Sunday and somehow or another you've compartmentalized your life and you walked out of one phase into another and all of a sudden you can just keep living like that? You think that will continue to go on? No. That brings us to number five, complacency, pride, egotism, blindness, hypocrisy. 
He said, do you put off the day of calamity? He says, you say that God's not going to bring all of this violence on you. But it says, and would you bring near the seed of violence? In other words, if, if we, we look at it in terms we can maybe better understand, he's saying you believe that God's not going to do to you what you're already doing to people. You already have violence in your land. You're bringing it on those who can't defend themselves. You're letting it to happen to people that have no way of protecting themselves, and yet you think that God is never going to lay a hand on you. Man, what a word. What a word for us today. Boy, they, they just felt like it won't ever happen here. Amos said it's already happening there, and you're causing it to happen. I mean, I know America. We got the greatest military in the world. And I understand that. But I just heard last week that Cook County, Illinois, for the first time in I forget how many years, that's where Chicago is, they have surpassed a 1,000 murders already this year, and they're still counting them. And we have violence on our streets we have people's businesses that are looted. We have all kind of corruption, all kinds of things going on. And for us to think, well, God's not ever going to mess with us. Amos says, you are already doing it to other people. I thought about abortion and what a travesty that is. And I'm glad that the Supreme Court is taking another look at it. But think about this. The World Health Organization... And for most people right now, that seems to be the King James Version of everything. They tell us that we are still butchering about 40 to 50 million unborn children in the world every year. 40 to 50 million, that is 125,000 children are being killed every day. Do you realize abortion is illegal in Afghanistan? But if Afghanistan was over there killing 125,000 children every day, we'd be over there with some warplanes tearing the place apart. It's not legal there. It is here. It is here. As a matter of fact, in the United States, the CDC says that one in four women have already had an abortion. That's 1,700, and that number's down some. This is 2019 stats, but in 2019, 1,725 a day took place in America. Since 2019, I'm told the numbers have been going back up. That means just while we're in church today, 142 little infant children are going to be butchered. We get all wound up when a few people die somewhere, and we should, if one person dies. But we don't seem to care when 142 die in two hours. It's amazing. Yeah, there's rape and incest. That's only about 1.5% of all abortions. In 2015, 35% of all pregnancies in New York City ended with the baby dying at the hands of abortion. And African-American women in New York City had more abortions than they had children. Complacency, pride, egotism, blindness, 
hypocrisy. Excess. I'm going to move through these quickly. Excess. Verse 4, those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl. That's a good word. They sprawl on their couch. I've sprawled on a few couches. Saruim is the word. Vasaruim is the Hebrew. I think she put it up. But anyway, you see the vav there, and I knew somebody would correct me. That just means and sprawl. But sprawl means hang out over the edge. Okay, now he's getting kind of personal here. You're hanging over the edge. You sprawled out on your couches, hanging over the sides. That is a negative connotation that suggests implied laziness and drunkenness or both. And in verse 5, he goes on, Who improvised to the sound of the harp, and like David, you've composed songs for yourselves. you you got to have your tunes, and you're acting like you're like David. You're just making up your own little ditties now, and, and you're making up your own songs, and they might not be pleasing to God, but they suit you, and you like them, and you enjoy them, and it's all about you. Don't forget that, Amos would say. Who drink from bowls, sacrificial bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils. None of that was really the problem. He says, the problem is this, yet you have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Spiritually, you have seen the church just absolutely rot from within and without, and you're not even concerned about it maybe in your own life personally because we got one point left maybe in your own life personally you'd have to say yeah i've watched my life fall apart and i've not really cared i worry way more about will my check be big next week than how much lottie moon is going to get i mean we got christmas coming up who decided to put lottie moon at christmas anyway Maybe you've thought of all of them things. And then today we found out that she was a hooligan. No telling what we're going to learn next Sunday. I was almost like, Kathy, you need to knock it off. We're not going to get $15,000. Woman's trying to burn a seminary down. Excess. I don't need to give you any examples of that, do I? In America. Would, would it impress you if I told you how much we drink, consuming alcohol, how much we spend on cosmetics, how much we blow on ourselves? I, I, I didn't put any of it down, so don't worry. I'm not going to tell you all of that. But I did look up this week how much we pay getting our nails done. I'm getting 50% off now. Complacency, pride, egotism, blindness, hypocrisy, excess. One last one, ignorance. Verse 12, he says, do horses run on rocks? He's not talking about gravel or smaller rocks. He's talking about like a rock cliff. He said, they don't go up the side of a cliff, 
solid granite rock cliff or whatever it might be, and nobody plows there with oxen. Yet you have done some of the dumbest things. You've done things that are as dumb as trying to get a horse to climb the side of a rock cliff. He says, yet you've turned justice into poison. Could you imagine? Again, I, I ask, living in a country where you're taking the justice system and turned it inside out, and instead of it bringing justice, about all it ever brings is injustice? I bet you can, can't you? Yeah, they did that. It's not a new idea. And you've turned the fruit of righteousness. You've taken things like righteousness. People who say, hey, you know what? You ought to get married before you do that. You've taken that and turned it into bitter wormwood. Wormwood was a, a, a word for bitterness. You've made that into something bad. When the preacher stands up and talks about living right well, that's just him judging other people, and Jesus wouldn't do that. You've turned that on its head as well, he says. Those are the fruits of righteousness. They used to be proclaimed before God and exalted, and people tried their best to attain it and live their, the best they could and, 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 and live for the Lord, and, and there were certain things they wouldn't do and all of that. He says all of that's just like been turned inside out. And, and, and last of all, in verse 13, he says, and you rejoice in Lodibar. What is Lodibar? Well, Lodibar, literally, lo means not or no. And Debar would be word or sometimes translated pasture. It's usually translated, though, by the Hebrew people. They would use this word to say nothing. In other words... He's telling them, you get all excited and rejoice as a nation in nothing. Well, look at our accomplishments. Look at all of the wonderful things we've done. The greatest nation in the world. I couldn't help but think about it this week. Did you see the graph that one of the news organizations produced to demonstrate the graph went like this and then it just dropped off out of sight. But you had to look at the graph closely because the graph was demonstrating that this week gas prices went down two cents. That's Lodi Bar. You go to fill up today, tell them, just cry out. Just be out there at the gas pump screaming at the top of your lungs. Lodi Bar. Lodi Bar. I'll get you out of jail. I'll come tell them. I got him all worked up. I'm sorry. You rejoice at nothing. If you go back to abortion, you made that a right and a privilege, and you call it reproductive justice, and you march in your streets and pound your chest and brag about that accomplishment. He said, that's a loaded bar in my sight. It's nothing. It's worthless. So many other things we brag about that mean nothing. These Old Testament prophets are tough. See, now I'm going to blame it on Amos. I mean, I wouldn't have said all this stuff. I'm just telling you what he said. 
I feel a measure of kinship with old Amos, and boy, I dare not compare myself to him. But I realize, boy, he took a slandering for some of the things he preached, and I don't get that from you. I have from others, but I just understand, I think, that here he was, he probably was like me too. He probably sounded like cornbread when he talked. I don't know. He wasn't sophisticated. But he knew God took me. I wasn't a prophet. Neither was my daddy a prophet. I didn't inherit this business. Never wanted to be. And I can tell you, for me, I, I didn't either. I've told you before, I got a bad case early in my life of mind my own business, and I haven't got over it yet. I don't want to tell anybody how to live their life. I want to not care what you do. I want to not care what you post. I want to not care how you live your life. I want to mind my own business, and if you want to wreck yours, then have at it. But the Lord took me. February 13th, 1980, and he said, I want you to preach my word. But I don't want to preach your word. Where are you going to? And I did. And I thank him for calling me. I don't regret it a bit. But I don't want anybody in this world, when I leave this place one day, look at me or look at the hole in the ground or whatever, And say, so here was a guy that enjoyed beating up on people and telling people how to live their life. I don't even know how to live mine sometimes. I feel like a fool standing up here most of the time. I joke around. I usually do more of that when I'm really nervous. When I've lost my place, I feel like a sermon's dying on me. I feel like people aren't listening. I'm not sure what I need to say next. My goodness, this is not a comfortable place for me. I don't enjoy it at all. Not that part of it. But I do it because I'm called by God. And knowing I'm doing what he called me to do, I do enjoy that. I want to be faithful to that. And you and I have heard a word today, not from Mike Snellgrove. We've heard a word from God, church. A wake-up call. A wake-up call. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you right now, Father, and I ask you to help us, God. Help us to look at our own heart and life right now. Lord, not to be thinking about where we're going, what we got to do today. Just right now, Lord, help each and every one of us in this building right here to look at our own heart and life. Perhaps we have neglected our spiritual walk recently. Maybe it's gone on for a week, a month, years, decades. I don't know. I don't know people's hearts. I know mine. I know my tendencies, God. I know my tendency toward ignorance and blindness and hypocrisy and egotism and all of these things we talked about today, God. I've undermined my own spiritual walk many, many times by being prideful and foolish. I pray that every one of us here would look, first of all, at ourselves today 
Oh, we know of churches that are dying, and we know we live in a country, God, that is headed toward judgment. We know, Lord, unless you judge America, then you're going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah a great apology. We know it's coming. But, Lord, there's little we can do about that. We have to leave that in your hands. Pray that you'll change hearts and lives. But, God, help us right now to look at our heart in life. Lord, maybe we felt a little bit invincible. Maybe we felt like, God, that we couldn't fall into temptation like pornography or adultery or fornication or alcoholism or drug addiction or Maybe we felt like those things were just part of a whole different realm of society and could never creep into our life, Lord. God, I pray you'd help us. Help us, Lord, to focus on you. Let us feel that gouge in the ribs today and be thankful for it. Let us praise your name that we've heard a woe, a woe from you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.